Hello, and welcome to the Spillman Insights Podcast, where thought leaders at Spillman, Thomas & Battle update friends and clients on legal and business issues. Thank you, Pamela. Yeah, again, uh, welcome to everybody, and I realize we're going to have some people join us along the way, and that is fine. I I know that not everybody uh, who has registered is on, but uh, we are grateful that that you're here, and we're happy to to try to help. I want to take a couple of moments uh, to describe what we we hope to accomplish today, Um, and and we have an hour to do it, so we, we do appreciate the questions that some of you uh, sent in already in writing, and we definitely are going to try to address those. Some of those questions are directly um, related to the topic of some of our other one-hour webinars. Um, we did. We just finished one on um, uh, labor and employment issues specifically, uh, and those we, we know are, are, are hot-button issues that are changing every day. Um, and so some of that's already been addressed, uh, and we have that seminar up on the website, and um, so I encourage you to go uh, to that source as well if we don't answer your questions today. We have other upcoming seminars on on other topics that were also subject to some of the written submissions that we've seen. Um, Our our hope is that we give you enough information today that at least allows you to know what questions you need to ask. Um, In this hour, we're going to uh, touch base on a variety of topics. Uh, we're definitely going to try to answer some questions for you, but at the end of the day, uh, it's certainly our hope that at least we've we've empowered you and given you uh, at least enough information to where you, you know you need to watch certain issues or know you need to follow up and ask certain questions. Um, and and that is is that's the goal of it. And what we've done, we've, we've put three of us together. I'm Niall Paul. I'm the chair of the, the, the firm's, what we call the battle group. Um, the law firm's name, obviously, is Spillman, Thomas, and Battle. Uh, and so we, we use that name, the battle group, uh, because initially what the group was formed to sort of be parachute lawyers, uh, where we would jump in and, and help in, in sort of crisis situations, um, whether it's it's you know, j- jumping in right before trial or jumping in with injunctions or whatever it may be. And certainly we're being called upon now a lot by our clients to answer very important questions. Uh, and we're going to share some of that with you today. Jim Walls is, um, again, one of our, our litigation partners, a trial lawyer uh, extraordinaire. And frankly, as I always say with Jim, is if, if amongst the many things in which he's uh, done in his career, he's been in-house counsel in the energy sector, uh, not only in-house uh, general counsel in the energy sector, and he's also tried many cases to verdict. Uh, so he's, he's wonderfully well-rounded. And in terms of the issues and things like force majeure and contracts and supply chains, uh, Jim has dealt with th- that question in the context of small contracts or in the context of a uh, situation where we're dealing with bees, as in billions, not millions. And so um, he's done that everywhere from the perspective of general counsel to the uh, trial lawyer, uh, taking the case to verdict in front of juries. Joseph Schaefer is uh, one of our top uh, trial lawyers and litigators as well. He's going to talk today uh, focused on uh, some of the very discrete issues. Some of the, many of the questions were got also on some business interruption. Uh, and so Joseph is going to take, a, uh, take us in a more thorough approach to business interruption and uh, who is maybe who isn't uh, an, uh, an essential employer or at least how to address that issue. 
uh, in this ever-changing time. So it, it's it's funny to be to talk in terms of how things change. Um, and again, I know uh, in this time, it seems like daily you may have more questions or more issues that come up. Just yesterday, uh, two very important developments occurred, and so it, this, this presentation has changed. Uh, just you know, between, between the time we went to bed and, and, and we woke up. Um, and so and one of those changes is a very significant uh, development um, issued by the uh, EPA. And while it hasn't uh, occurred uh, soon enough uh, or, or in time frame enough where we actually have cases filed already, um, but we can talk about uh, the EPA has issued actually an enforcement discretion policy relating to the COVID-19 pandemic. And we know there's questions about that. So let me let, let me address that briefly, even though it's, there actually is no ongoing litigation. There certainly could be. And at least maybe this is good news to say there'll certainly be less litigation uh, from the federal government in this regard. So with regard to COVID-19 pandemic, uh, the EPA has announced that uh, it, it is a temporary policy regarding the enforcement of environmental legal obligations. Uh, there, there are very um, discreet, the policy is very brief, but what it indicates is that the EPA does not expect to seek civil penalties for non-compliance with routine monitoring or routine reporting obligations that are, that, that occur as a result of COVID-19 pandemic. So in other words, if there's a violation, if there is a, uh, uh, an exceedance um, for a, uh, or a non-compliant situation generally, uh, they're not expecting to seek civil enforcement or civil litigation with regard to those. Um, that now operators of public water systems are still expected to ensure that safe drinking water supplies exist. But in terms of other uh, entities, it, it, the EPA has actually taken steps that regulated facilities um, can qualify for this enforcement discretion. In other words, they're at least going to not pursue it while this pandemic is ongoing. Um, I mean, what that means in, in, in brief is that the EPA has <clears throat> is stated that if, if you're in that category, if you have a uh, permit, if you have air or water uh, permits, if you're in a compliance situation, um, if, if compliance is not reasonably practical. Now, the EPA on this website has issued this policy and it gives you, uh, it gives you sort of a list of items you have to check off, but it doesn't mean you can just simply, okay, we're not going to comply. What it says is you have to act reasonably under circumstances in order to minimize any exceedance. You have to identify the specific nature and dates of any exceedances or noncompliance. Uh, and then you have to keep a record of how COVID-19 actually caused the noncompliance. So you can't just have a noncompliance and then and say, oh, we're good because it's it's during this time. You actually have to keep a record of what caused it and whether that was limited personnel or whether that was somehow a social distancing requirement didn't allow you to get uh, to 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 be able to act in a manner that allowed the uh, compliance to occur. Uh, you also have to have documented evidence of your best efforts and how you designed your current process to try to meet um, any of those expectations. 
And you have to make sure that you can prove that you had a return to compliance as soon as possible after either the exceedance or after uh, COVID-19 stay-at-home or essential business edicts uh, have been lifted. Um, So the keys are going to be you have to document it. You have to document how it relates to COVID-19 and how how you move yourself into compliance as quickly as possible. Um, you, there is other things that are very important to note on this. If there's existing procedures to report non-compliance uh, and it's a routine sort of mechanism, you're still expected to try to follow that. Uh, so if you have an exceedance, you're still supposed to self-report. Um, if you can't self-report again due to something related to COVID-19, you have to keep a record of it and then self-report as quickly as possible. Um, Also, same thing with uh, administrative settlement agreements. It gets gets a little trickier. A lot of administrative settlement agreements that you have with the EPA or or, or other agencies like that will require um, notifications. You're supposed to follow that that process as best you can. If you can't, again, you're going to have to have um, a documentation of it. This is another interesting one that if there's a settlement agreement that actually has a force majeure uh, component to it, and Jim's going to speak to that generally in terms of force majeure and contracts, uh, but you have to follow the steps as outlined in that settlement agreement. If you're operating under an EPA or a regional director settlement agreement or any kind of agreement with the administrative agency. If you have... Uh, if you're under a RICRA or CERCLA situation and or agreement, that is going to have separate guidance, which they haven't issued yet. So RICRA and CERCLA, if you're either under administrative order or you have general RICRA or CERCLA obligations, they have not, to my knowledge, as of this moment, this morning at 10 a.m., uh, said that you, you, they're going to have civil discretion uh, in enforcing those. I expect they will have some leniency with those, but not as much. And then finally, there is no uh, discretion in terms of criminal or willful violations. Uh, so this is very important development. It, it, I think there will be a lot of litigation on the back end, also from activist groups or other environmental type groups. Um, that doesn't mean they can't continue to, to litigate these issues during this discretionary period. But um, certainly the federal government has uh, said that they will not uh, seek enforcement uh, of civil penalties during this time period. And they're going to work with DOJ with regard to the RICRA, CERCRA, and other type of uh, civil enforcement uh, issues. That policy just hasn't been issued. We're unaware of state governments, but expect them to do the same sorts of uh, follow-up. So what... That's one thing, again, like I said, it changed today, but I do want to talk about some of the other questions we've already had. I I will tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to try to pick up on a couple of questions we've had, address those for you uh, as quickly as we can, and then I'm going to really quickly go through the litigation we've seen to date. And when I do that, uh, we're just going to go through them almost like, like blurbs, but the hope is to help you see, one, what litigation has already been filed and how that might impact you. And that impact could be in a way of, do I need to protect myself from that litigation? Is that something that someone can bring in action 
a similar action against me? Or even, is that something I should consider? Is that a, a, a proactive piece of litigation that I need to consider? And because we have such a wide variety of sizes and types and industries on the call, on the webinar today, um, I'm going to go through all the cases that we've seen. And um, some of them may or may not apply to you. That's why we're going to do it as quickly as we can. Uh, but it, it hopefully at least allow, alerts you to say, that's a type of litigation I need to continue to follow up on, that I need to continue to try to pay attention to. We hope to be able to continue to keep track as best we can of trends, and we'll keep those on our task force uh, webpage. So um, the, one of the biggest questions we've had is, um, Or could I be sued because a, a employee contracted uh, COVID-19 at work? And there's all sorts of other questions that go along with that. Um, the, and, and I'm going to address these, what we call uh, in certain jurisdictions, deliberate intent. You're very familiar with the workers' comp bar, I'm sure. So if workers' comp covers something, can you still be sued civilly in that regard? Um if workers' comp doesn't cover it, can you be sued civilly in that regard? Uh, I'm going to address that. Uh, we certainly have, a, have had questions, though, about what do I do with employees who have uh, contracted uh, or have been exposed uh, to, to uh, the coronavirus, the novel coronavirus, or who have uh, lives with someone who's contracted COVID-19 or who have COVID-19. I will touch on that very briefly now, and I put up these two slides, which are basically CDC guidance, because that, so on the first half, as to the questions that relate to what I should do. Um, our, again, our LNA seminar is up on the site already. That was, it addressed that directly. And I know that our uh, labor and employment guys, are, uh, men and women are answering that, uh, that question daily for, for people and working on developing policies and on how, if they have a, a spouse of a, an employee that's been exposed, or if they have an employee that's been exposed, or someone who's exhibiting symptoms, how do you react with that person? How do you investigate that? And how do you uh, inform other employees about the possible exposure at work? Uh, there's daily changing guidance on that, but the one thing we have right now to go on, and the best thing to go on right now, is the CDC guidance on high risk, medium risk, low risk, and what to do in, in those circumstances. You know, the, the high risk is defined on this chart. It's basically if you're living in the same household, uh, intimate partner, or providing care in a non-healthcare setting to someone who has a laboratory-confirmed COVID-19 infection. That's high risk. Um, medium risk is if you've traveled to or from uh, a country or a cruise ship that has had uh, community exposure uh, documented. If you have close contact with a person who's symptomatic with COVID-19, other than the living condition situation, that's that's medium risk. Being on an aircraft uh, within six feet of someone confirmed, that's uh, medium risk. And then low risk is you know being in the same indoor environment, classroom, hospital, rating room, even I'm going to say the workplace. So based on those ratings, is the 
CDC has also indicated the action, the type of actions you can, or what they call management, if symptomatic or management, if asymptomatic. So they have another chart. If you have a high-risk situation, they recommend quarantine, no public activities, daily active monitoring, et cetera. So if you have an employee in the high-risk category, you have to treat them a certain way. If you have an employee in medium risk, you have to treat them in low risk a certain way. And again, that topic, the employment topic, is covered in far more detail on how best to do that. There was a specific question of, can I talk to employees about health care issues in front of other employees? And that's still something we advise against and recommend against. I mean, I'm going to imagine sometimes it may be an emergent situation relating to this or otherwise, but that still has to be kept confidential in terms of the personnel, the name, the condition, et cetera. And so that sort of interview involving health care questions should be done in a private setting as possible. We obviously advise and work with employer clients who have said, how do I communicate that there might be an exposure at work? Well, some of the touchstones obviously are you can't use that employee's name that they might have been exposed to without that consent. You do have to do an investigation of exposure. So how do you do that? And that, again, covered in more detail before, but that looks like the other investigation. But it's a matter of, you know, have you had exposure to an employee who's worked in housekeeping, for instance, or who worked in maintenance or who worked in drafting? You know, have you had an exposure to a neutral anonymous employee versus a very specific employee? And then you have to communicate also as best you can in the situation itself. Then we go to whether or not any kind of getting COVID-19 can be covered by workers' comp. And again, we're talking to people on a daily basis throughout the country and just like on this phone call. So every state's workers' comp law is different. And again, I have to address it in a general manner rather than a very specific one. But ordinary diseases of life are generally not compensable under a state's workers' comp program. Is this an ordinary disease of life? Certainly that's going to be litigated. I think it's going to be awfully hard for any employee to prove that they've gotten COVID-19 at work. At least that that exposure was isolated to work and not elsewhere. It's going to be very hard to prove that. Might be easier to prove that in a very liberal workers' comp setting versus civil suit, which we'll talk about in a second. But, you know, employees in a health care setting or a first responder might have a higher chance of saying, I clearly got it at work. The odds are I got it at work. It's more likely than not I got it at work. And that may be covered by workers' compensation in terms of causation. Then you still have to go back to ordinary diseases of life. Is it an ordinary disease of life? Will it be covered? Or is it an injury that occurred at work? It's going to be harder in a non-health care type environment as a whole. With that said, let's talk about a civil suit and injuries to people at work. The same difficulty that I mentioned earlier, just it's even heightened in civil litigation than it is in workers' comp. So the idea is, can an employee sue because they're exposed at work? Sure. 
that can happen. The allegation is going to be under a workers' comp bar exception. In a lot of states, that's known as deliberate intent. Deliberate intent doesn't mean that you literally deliberately intended that they were injured or hurt, but that you typically that's going to be that you failed, that you purposely or knowingly failed to meet either literal safety guidelines, a safety procedure or safety regulation, or you failed to meet a well-known industry standard. Right now, we do not have a federal regulation on what to do with the novel coronavirus or COVID-19. But again, the best guidance on that is going to be the CDC. Also, we do have edicts by state government saying stay at home. We do have edicts by state government saying who is and who isn't essential. So if you're not on the essential list and you're continuing to work and you have employee exposed and you have an employee then that sues, are you going to be more likely to have to litigate that case than being able to defeat that case early on? Probably because at that point, whatever social, I mean, whatever industry standards we have or government regulations are coming on the fly, but they're being developed. And the best case for that is going to be, what is the government saying about it on a current basis? And what do we know in terms of an industry standard? Well, we know the CDC guidance. So again, if you're non-essential and you're trying to continue to operate, you're putting yourself at risk. There are ways, and Joseph will address it, seeking waivers for if you haven't been designated essential. And Joseph is going to speak to that. So in a normal course in civil litigation, the issue will be, have you violated a regulation or have you violated an industry standard? The best we can see now, again, is that CDC guidance being an industry standard. And again, that's going to change and the social distancing capacity is even going to change depending on your industry. Can you still have people work from home? Can you keep 6, 10, 20 feet apart in the office? Versus do you have coal miners going underground in a man trip? I do know that the UMW has asked for specific guidance on coal mining and for specific guidance on how to address COVID-19 issues in a coal mine setting. That's not to be unexpected from the UMW, but we don't have that guidance yet. We do have the general guidance of social distancing. We do have the general guidance of staying 6 feet apart. Anyone who's been on a man trip knows that's impossible on a man trip. Does that mean you put one in the front and one in the back and you run more trips? I can't imagine that's the answer to that. But we have to think about it. We have to do what you can in the context of your industry to go ahead and try to meet social distancing standards. Also meet cleaning standards. Also doing the things that shows you're trying to keep exposure at a minimum. If you look at the CDC guidance, which we went through very quickly earlier, you'll see high risk, medium risk, and low risk. It's pretty, I'll call it generous, as to what is low risk. If you remember, medium risk is even sitting within 6 feet on the same airplane. So if someone was 4 seats ahead of you, although today 4 seats may be less than 6 feet these days on a plane, but let's say 10 rows ahead of you on a plane, that's not even medium risk. 
So again, we don't have to overreact here, but we certainly have to act. And you do have to do the best you can to, in the context of your industry to come up with uh, protocols that try to meet those sorts of things. Um, there's also issues on some payroll tax credit. That clearly was covered by, by our uh, labor and employment group in the seminar. It's posted on the web. There are dollar-for-dollar dollar reimbursements and offsets. Um, there, there is all sorts of questions yet creating IRS guidance. We don't have time to dive into that a lot today. We don't expect a lot of litigation on that front um, today uh, or, or in the immediate future, but certainly it's something you should stay on top of and take advantage of if you can get that and, and how that works is better explained by our labor and employment folks and including in their, their seminar, which is on the website. So I will um, uh, try to now go through, give you a quick blurbs on the type of litigation we're seeing. Business interruption uh, insurance is hot and heavy. It was one of the first cases out of the box. It was a French Quarter restaurant uh, suing to enforce business interruption policy. Uh, the novel theory that the virus itself being on the building or in the building uh, has caused harm and damage to the building and therefore resulted in business interruption covered by the policy. Anyone looking at this issue has to look at your, your, your policy. You have to get together with your legal advisor and, 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 and go through that review. Joseph is going to talk about that in more detail, including a hot off the press West Virginia insurance bulletin uh, that was just issued yesterday uh, that gives guidance on that very issue. Um, and again, Joseph's going to talk about it, but the Western Insurance Commissioner has given guidance on whether or not it, it thinks um, it, there's coverage in this sort of general situation. Uh, and a quick read of that, again, highlights the idea that typically you need, whether it's business interruption or civil authority interruption, you need physical uh, damage to the building. There is this interesting case out of New Orleans where a restaurant has said that the virus on the building itself is physical harm. And then there's a case by um, the Choctaw and the Chickasaw uh, nations um, where they have sued uh, Lloyds of London and others making the same allegations, including the uh, civil authority disruption and, and worried about the loss of revenue to their casinos, tourism, and other things caused by the virus. And again, their, their argument there is that the virus being on a building um, is, is causing literal physical harm. One of the issues spotted there, discussed by Joseph as well, is you know if you're in that business uh, service industry of uh, food or vending type industry, do you want to be in a position of saying that that virus is literally inside your restaurant? Um, you know, that's another issue that you need to, you, you need to take a look at and talk with uh, both with your legal and business advisors. <clears throat> there have already been shareholder uh, lawsuits based on the, the COVID-19 um, pandemic. You know, Inovio is, is a, a company that said they developed within three hours a vaccine. Its, its stock shot up uh, and was riding high for days until somebody, which is basically a short seller activist, issued a uh, email that said that SEC should shut down sales of that that uh, that stock because of the I think the quote was the ludicrous and outrageous claims of developing a vaccine in three hours, and then the stock plummeted. I think 90 percent or 75 percent 
And uh, so there's a case already on that. Uh, it was like a six-week run on that stock. And anyone who bought during those six weeks, uh, February to March in that time frame, um, they filed a class action already. And then Norwegian Cruise Lines. We're not going to talk a lot about the lawsuits by the cruise ship passengers. That is covered by all sorts of interesting, very specific laws to the cruise ship industry on injury. But there is a Norwegian Cruise Line shareholder suit, and that's based on the fact that um, really kind of standard language that uh, you know most companies would say. I think that the language there is Norwegian Cruise Line said, we place the utmost importance on the safety of our guests and crew. We operate all of our vessels to meet and exceed the requirements of the international safety standards which govern the cruise industry. They also touted that they're at the top of cruise ship vessel sanitation. Um, and because of those representations, um, the uh, shareholder suits have been filed against them for misleading shareholders with regard to uh, their preparedness for something like COVID-19. Uh, foreclosures and uh, oh, I'm sorry, patent issues. Uh, there's also patent issues. Um, already being filed, uh, Theranos, you might remember, was the, the uh, claim to fame a few years ago where they said that they could take very little blood and do multiple tests in a very quick time. It turned out to be a bit of a sham. Uh, if she's not in jail, I think the, the, the president of that company is going to jail. Um, and apparently somebody bought some of their technology, their patented technology, and then was using them to develop covid 19 tests. Um, well, then uh, a place by, called Labrador Diagnostics, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, they were developing, um, I'm sorry, the, the, the entity was developing a test in laboratory uh, diagnostics actually uh, sued to stop the development of COVID-19 tests using that patented technology because they purchased it from Theranos when Theranos went, up, went under. And they said that uh, they would not allow them to use it. And they asked for an injunction, stopping them from developing um, COVID-19 tests. Well, commentators far and wide said it might have been the most tone-deaf piece of litigation ever. Uh, and then as a result of massive backlash, laboratories now said that, uh, sorry, Labrador Diagnostics have now said they will allow the use of that technology only for the development of COVID-19, but they're going to continue to try to seek protection of their patents um, after that. Other than that, foreclosures and debt collection, the very first case we saw was filed in West Virginia. It was a class action to shut down Bank of America for being able to foreclose. Uh, that, that lawsuit was filed so quickly it didn't give Bank of America a chance uh, to do its own thing, which actually on its own said they, they weren't going to do foreclosures for the next 60 days during this pandemic. It also didn't give... Uh, there are enough time for the federal government to react, who, who has also reacted, to say that uh, I think for the next 60 days, any federally backed loan uh, cannot be foreclosed on. Um, so, again, but that was one of the very first cases that was filed here here in Charleston, West Virginia. There are also activists that are suing a uh, variety of states. One, the first one was out of Massachusetts, uh, saying that the, the uh, Constitution did not allow the states to limit the size of meetings. So any order that said you can't meet in groups of less than 25 or 10, et cetera, was unconstitutional. That case has literally already initially been decided by the judge. He said that the, the emergency allowed 
made it a reasonable, constitutionally supported decision. Uh, there's actually a lawsuit to hold China and the city of Wuhan, uh, Wuhan uh, responsible for uh, billions of dollars worth of damages filed by four uh, citizens in um, Florida. I'm not sure where that case is going, but two citizens in Miami-Dade County and two in Palm Beach County uh, literally filed suit uh, seeking personal injury damages and property damages. There are a number of suits um, already suing the government for inmate release. Uh, government suits closing beaches and closing public parks and human rights groups uh, in L.A. are suing uh, to get uh, a plan or a uh, uh, getting benefits for the homeless. I have not seen that. Uh, I have not seen that uh, the results of that, but they had an emergency hearing the other day. There's litigation over independent contractors, as you would see uh, in any setting. Uh, and that's kind of a typical that was focused on Lyft and on. Um, uh, Uber and that lawsuit is uh, was was filed out in LA, um, but that's one to expect. Of course, force majeure. Jim's going to talk about that. There are a number of suits on hand sanitizers suing both um, Purell and Germax for their claims regarding uh, uh, being able to help prevent the spread or, or kill. Um, a variety of, of in, infectious diseases, including the flu, a MRSA, Ebola, and the uh, corona, coronavirus. Although most of these suits involve claims prior to the pandemic, there was one recently brought that also included pandemic claims. Um, there's price gouging litigation, literally uh, against brought by a lawyer who ordered stuff on Amazon, uh, who said that the increased prices uh, on Amazon were, were illegal under Florida uh, Fair Trade uh, Act and Unfair Trade Practices Act. Uh, that uh, Amazon itself has already identified, I think, 4,000 sellers that they've already taken off their website. So I'm not sure where that case is going. Um, and I believe that that's a very quick. I'm sorry for the sprint on that, guys, but those are the that's the trends we're seeing. Obviously, we think that the biggest. Uh, uh, Litigation is going to come in three areas. It's going to be employees that are claimed to be uh, impacted or or uh, caused to get COVID-19 at work. Um, I covered that quickly for you, but the standards we believe of deliberate intent or the workers' comp bar are still going to apply uh, there. And then um, force majeure and um, business interruption. And so I'm going to turn this over now to Jim Walls on the force majeure topic. And uh, I thank you guys for listening to me. Thanks, Niall. Good morning, everyone. Um, as Niall said, I'm going to talk about force majeure. Uh, we've all heard the term uh, forever. Um, it's a French term. Uh, what it really means is uh, it's a doctrine that excuses contractual performance under certain conditions. Um, and really, there are three sources of, of force majeure. The first is uh, a contract clause itself, if your contract uh, has a clause uh, uh, outlining how force majeure is handled, then that's what you have to, to comply with. Um, if your contract does not have a force majeure clause and it's a contract for the sale of goods, then you have to rely on the Uniform Commercial Code, Article 2, and its uh, impracticability doctrine. And then finally, if you have a contract that doesn't have a force majeure clause, 
and it's not for the sale of goods, then you have to rely on the common law doctrine of impracticability. Um, the principles for all three of those uh, uh, doctrines are relatively the same. I can tell you, though, that uh, it's a higher bar. It's, it's harder to, to, to um, win on a force majeure claim under the common law doctrine than it is under, uh, under a, a contractual force majeure clause. Um, and today I'm going to focus mostly on contractual force majeure clauses. Um, and and uh, I could talk for hours on the subject. I'm going to try to limit this to about 15 minutes, so I'm going to hit the highlights. Um, before I do that, let me tell you a little bit about myself. I've been practicing law uh, for 30 years, and I've handled a number of force majeure claims and cases. Uh, I graduated from law school in 1989, and at that time, the employees of Pittston Coal Company, which was one of the largest coal companies in the world, certainly in the country at that time, were on strike. As a result, Pittston was unable to mine and sell coal. I was fortunate enough to represent a number of coal brokers who had uh, long-term contracts to buy coal from Pittston and then resell it to various power plants uh, around the uh, around the country. Uh, as a result of the strike, Pittston asserted force majeure under our purchase contracts, and we, in turn, asserted force majeure under our sales contracts. There were uh, I was involved in at least 10 lawsuits relating to that one strike. Uh, I was um, defending uh, my broker client's force majeure claims, and I was also fighting off uh, force majeure claims asserted by the people that were uh, supposed to be selling us the coal. And that's sort of where I had my force majeure baptism of fire uh, or by fire. Um, we're obviously not dealing with the coal strike now, but the same force majeure principles apply today. And many of you are asking whether you or your counterparties will be able to perform your various contractual obligations in light of the pandemic. We have government restrictions, quarantines, supply chain and transportation disruptions, and general economic turbulence, and, and they're seriously impacting commerce. Uh, I've been working with clients on a daily basis. I've been up since 6.30 today working with clients on, on uh, sort of defending force majeure claims and, and asserting force majeure um, this morning on, on two or three different matters. Uh, so it's out there. It's happening uh, in real time, and, it, and it's like the pandemic. It seems to be growing every day. I'm going to focus today on this question. Will the COVID-19 pandemic excuse non-performance of obligations under contracts that contain force majeure clauses? The short answer is this. In almost all cases, it depends on three things. Number one, the specific language of the clause itself. Number two, the contracts governing law. And number three, the specific facts of each case. So that's what I'm going to focus on. Let's start with the basics. What is force majeure and what are force majeure clauses? According to Merriam-Webster, the term force majeure means a superior or irresistible force or an event or effect that cannot be reasonably anticipated or controlled. And a force majeure clause allocates risk among contracting parties by relieving obligations under exception and or unforeseen circumstances that are beyond the party's control. These contract clauses expand those common law doctrines of impossibility and impracticability I talked about at the outset. Uh, and again, uh, you need to determine what type of contract you have first before you can figure out uh, which of the doctrines you're going to you're going to want to um, comply with. Uh, because if it's for a sale, it's, if it's a contract for the sale of goods, you have to look to the Uniform Commercial Code 
Article 2. If it's not a contract for the sale of goods, then you're looking to the common law doctrines. And if it's a contract that has a clause in it, a force majeure clause in it, then you need to read very closely that clause because that's what's going to govern. For those without a contractual force majeure clause and without a contract for the sale of goods, here's the Reader's Digest version of the common law doctrine of impossibility. Under that doctrine, a party to a contract who claims that a supervening event like the coronavirus has prevented some type of performance of the contract must demonstrate each of the following four elements. One, that the event made the performance impracticable, not impossible, but impracticable. Two, the non-occurrence of the event was a basic assumption on which the contract was made. Three, the impracticability resulted without the fault of the party seeking to be excused. And four, the party has not agreed either expressly or impliedly to perform in spite of the impracticability. And that last point is really important because everybody's on edge. We want to maintain our commercial relationships and you want to try your best to overcome any type of triggering event that stops you from performing. And the easy thing to do is to write an email to your counterparty and say, look, I'm having a really hard time performing, but I'm going to do my best. I'm going to get over this. Don't worry about it. I'm going to perform. If you do that under the common law doctrine of impracticability, you might you might have just caused some damage to any future force majeure claims. So you have to be careful about what you want to what you say in any any emails or letters. Back to contractual force majeure, as with all contract terms, the starting point for interpreting a force majeure clause is the specific language of the clause itself. Many force majeure clauses set out specific triggering events and they vary by contract for the coronavirus. These are the triggering events that that you'd like to see specifically set out in your force majeure clause. Epidemics, pandemics, viral or communicable disease outbreaks, quarantines, disruption of supply chains, national emergencies. And in in many specific force majeure clauses, they say something like this. The non-performing party will be excused from performance to the extent his performance is impacted by an unforeseen event that's beyond his or her control, including the following. And that's sort of, you know, that's the best type of force majeure clause because it'll list them. But then it will say, you know, it won't be limited to those specific events. And if you or your counterparty have been unable to perform, you should review the force majeure clause very, very closely because that's what's going to govern. After you determine what the specific triggering events are, whether it's the supply chain disruption or a closure of one of your plants, the next thing you need to do is determine what the contract's notice requirements are. For example, the contract might say that in order to take advantage of the force majeure clause, you must provide your counterparty with written notice within five days of the triggering event. And that notice must explain in full how and why you can't perform. In fact, that's I don't recall seeing a well-drafted force majeure clause that doesn't require that. 
Um, and it's important that you uh, that you do your best to, to, to be as fulsome as possible in your very first force majeure letter. Um, and I'll tell you, in many cases, if a force majeure clause has a time limit on the notice, if you miss that that time deadline, you're going to lose. Um, so you really need to read that force majeure clause closely. The next thing I would do is determine which state's law applies. <clears throat> and because uh, many states treat these force majeure clauses differently. We, um, like most uh, commercial law in West Virginia, it, our, our state law on force majeure is not well developed. Uh, I went into Westlaw this morning and, and typed the words uh, force majeure in to search for all West Virginia cases on the subject and came up with six. Um, by contrast, I did that in New York and came up with over 200. Um, and the six that, 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 we, that I found in West Virginia really don't give any guidance or analysis on, on how force majeure clauses should be uh, construed. They just mention the words uh, sort of in an offhanded way. So you need to figure out which state law applies uh, to your force majeure clause. And you'll find that not in the force majeure clause itself. Uh, typically, you'll find that in the, uh, in the governing law section. And I want to say a, a, a few quick things. Uh, I know my short, but um, I want to say a few quick things about the, the, the different concepts or doctrine provisions of governing law and forum selection because it plays into these force majeure claims. There are two different provisions. The governing law section tells you which state law will apply to the, to the dispute involving that, that contract. The forum selection clause is different. It'll tell you where you have to file the lawsuit. And in many sophisticated commercial contracts, uh, they provide for, um, you know, a, a forum selection somewhere that's convenient for the parties. But they'll say that Delaware or New York law applies because that's those two state laws are more developed. So you could find yourself in an instance where you have to sue in Pennsylvania or be sued in Pennsylvania. And that court would have to apply Delaware or New York law. But that would be a good thing because those are really well-developed bodies of law on force majeure. Um, so after you, you figure out what the triggering events are and which state law applies, um, then the, the next thing that you really need to do is figure out how the specific triggering event prevented you or delayed you uh, in performing a contractual obligation. And it sounds pretty simple. Um, and I, you're going to see a lot of really poorly written force majeure claims that say something like, um, I can't perform because of the pandemic. Um, what you really need to do if you want to, if you want to prevail in, in these claims is to drill down on that and say, I can't perform this part of the contract that's due, my performance is due next Tuesday or something because um, this plant was closed and prevented me to, from doing this, this, and this. You know, I, I would really recommend that you don't just say, you know, as you know, we've got a pandemic and I can't perform. You, you're probably going to lose if you can't do that. So I want to talk about, uh, and I want to try to wrap this up to give Joseph enough time to talk about um, business interruption insurance claims. So um, I came up with nine specific questions that if you have a... Um, a COVID-19 related force majeure issue, I would focus on these nine questions and try to answer them as quickly as possible and get your ducks in a row. Number one, what is the triggering event that's affected your contractual performance? Is it a, is it a closure of a plant? Is it a supply chain issue? Is it a workforce issue? 
what is it? Number two, is the triggering event directly encompassed by the force majeure clause in your contract? If not, is there a catch-all phrase that refers to all acts of God? But you need to figure that out. Second or third, I would figure out what state law applies because you're going to get treated differently if you have to apply Delaware law than if you have to apply, let's say, Kentucky law. Number four, was the triggering event foreseeable or unforeseeable? That's a key. And in most cases, I think you're going to find that these COVID-19-related force majeure claims are going to be found to be unforeseeable. But if you've got a trickle-down effect and you start with the COVID-19 pandemic at the top of the list, and when you get down to how it affected the triggering event, you're going through five or six other sort of sub-triggering events, a court may determine that it was foreseeable. And if that's the case, you're going to lose. Number five, how did the triggering event affect performance? And did it make performance impossible, impracticable, or just unreasonably expensive? And I'll tell you, as a general rule, financial inability to perform is not a force majeure event. If you can't perform simply because you can't afford to, I think you're going to lose every force majeure claim you make. Number six, could non-performance have been avoided? Number seven, what efforts have you taken to mitigate non-performance? Very important. That's in terms of the importance of these sort of elements. This is, I would put in second place behind foreseeability or unforeseeability. And that is, if you have a triggering event that has prevented you or delayed you in performing, you're going to have to show, if you want to win one of these claims, that you've taken all commercially reasonable steps to mitigate the effects of the triggering event and the non-performance. And the more you can document that, the better off you're going to be. Number eight, what remedies does the force majeure clause provide for with respect to non-performance? What I mean by that is this. Some clauses say that if you have a force majeure event, you're going to be excused from performing for 14 days or a month or whatever. And in a lot of cases, they'll say that if you have a force majeure event and it lasts longer than 30 days, your counterparty can terminate the contract for no other reason. So you need to really take a look at what the remedies are in the event a force majeure claim is made. And then finally, number nine, what steps do you have to take to exercise your force majeure rights? What I mean by that is this. Is there a mandatory notice requirement? And if there is, you need to comply with it. And you need to look and make sure that you're checking all of the boxes in terms of what your force majeure notice needs to have in it in order to be successful. Let me wrap this up so I can turn it over to Joseph. I don't have a crystal ball, but I suspect that most businesses, big and small, are going to find themselves on both sides of this issue. They're doing any commerce at all. And based on my 30 years of experience in handling these claims, here are the two best pieces of advice I can give everyone. First, get your ducks in a row now. Start documenting, answering those nine questions I just laid out. Try to answer as many of them as you can, as fulsomely as you can. And second, do everything you can to negotiate and resolve these issues with your counterparties before they turn into lawsuits. I think in reading media reports every day, 
about um, about these uh, uh, force majeure claims and lawsuits being filed, as now said, all over the country. And, and like the pandemic itself, I think they're going to grow exponentially. And if I was running a business that's affected by the coronavirus, I'd want to do everything I could to try to avoid litigating these issues. And, and I'd really do my best to try to get them negotiated and resolved before litigation. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Joseph Schaefer, who's going to talk uh, for a little bit about business interruption claims. And as Niall and Pamela both said, if you have specific questions, please um, submit them uh, to Pamela, who's running this webinar, and she'll get them to Niall, Joseph, and me, and we'll do our best to try to answer. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Niall. Uh, so good morning. My name, again, is Joseph Schaefer. I'm a member in our Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania office. I do um, commercial litigation work primarily, um, and I'm licensed in Pennsylvania as well as West Virginia, Virginia, the District of Columbia, and most of the federal courts in those jurisdictions. As Jim mentioned, I'm going to be talking about business interruption insurance primarily, but before I get there, I would like to address a couple questions that came in. We had a question about um, whether an employer is deemed an essential business. What is the company's liability if someone claims COVID-19 exposure at work? Um, briefly, I think um, that's a difficult question to answer at this juncture. And I understand that's somewhat of a cop-out, but it is factually very dependent. What I can tell you is that I think it will depend on whether you are operating under a government direction or whether you are continuing to operate voluntarily. These um, essential business determinations, of course, allowing um, businesses to operate rather than um, requiring them to do so, at least at this juncture. Um, but the second question then is what type of action and documentation of action should employers still operating do to mitigate liability? And um, one of the things there um, that we have been working with clients on are some of the best practices. And so for that question and for others, I would encourage you to contact our um, labor and employment members of our COVID-19 task force who have been working on that um, extensively over the last um, couple of weeks. The last one asks about the limit of 500 employees for um, certain issues being applied by um, FEIN. And um, again, that is a, a question best directed to our uh, labor and employment group in our COVID-19 task force. And um, you can find those individuals on our website or reach out to any one of us today, and we're happy to put you in touch. But on to the business interruption insurance questions, which I know there were quite a few. Uh, I'm going to focus on that, but I also, if I have time, I'm going to try to cover a few other types of coverage, um, just so that you are aware and thinking of these going forward. Um, and I do want to um, note that this discussion is not focused on any one state's law or on any one policy. This is more of a general discussion, and your um, results may vary by jurisdiction and also by carrier and certainly by facts. And those are really the key things. First, your jurisdiction. Second, your policy. And third, your facts. As I was thinking about this and preparing for it, I kept thinking about the farmers commercials with J.K. Simmons, where at the end, um, after going through somewhat of an absurd insurance situation, he says, we know a thing or two because we've seen a thing or two. And I think what we are seeing right now is um, something that even farmers didn't foresee. We have truly um, an event that is unprecedented in, in size and scope. 
And so um, what I can guarantee you, perhaps the one thing I can guarantee you is that um, no one can t predict today exactly what is going to happen or come out of these cases six months or even a year from now. But um, so turning then to business interruption, broadly speaking, business interruption covers um, net income and normal operating expenses, including your payroll, if you are required to suspend or limit your operations. Typically, that's going to be part of a commercial property policy, and those policies are going to define the loss events that will provide you with coverage. Now, um, commercial property is generally issued either as named peril coverage or as an all risks coverage. So named peril um, generally means that only those specific events that are covered or, or that are listed in the policy are covered. And although it is um, possible that um, a named peril um, policy would pull in pandemics or viruses, et cetera, I think that's probably going to be unlikely. What you're going to see more are discussions of all risks policies. And those are, again, generally speaking, those types of policies that cover whatever is not excluded. And so we need to start by looking at our policy and seeing what types of events are covered. And then we're going to want to look at the business um, interruption in, um, form that is part of that policy. And there, um, as you've probably heard and as Niall mentioned, one of the key things is going to be um, the conditions on which business interruption coverage is being supplied. And the key language is um, probably, almost certainly going to be um, direct loss. And just as an example, um, I'm looking at a, a typical business interruption policy right now, and it says the suspension must be caused by direct physical loss of or damage to property at premises which are described in the declarations and for which a business limit income of insurance is shown in the declarations. So it's that key language, direct physical loss of or damage to the property at premises. And so what does that mean, um, direct physical loss and or damage? And um, as Niall said, we've already started to see lawsuits filed over that. The French Quarter restaurants in New Orleans, as well as the um, American Indian tribes whose casinos have been affected by the shutdown. And there are some cases where the presence of a bacteria or virus on a surface was held to qualify as a um, direct um, physical loss or damage to property. Um, and those cases generally are coming from jurisdictions that don't require um, physical damage or, or destruction into property, but that instead interpret a physical loss as an alteration or impairment of function or the rendering of property as uninhabitable. And again, that comes back to why jurisdiction is so important and even policy is so important because many of those cases um, turn on the interpretation of specific policy language. Now, this is basically the arguments that we see in the New Orleans restaurant case, where the um, plaintiff is saying that the virus is present on the um, surface, and this is the alteration or physical loss or damage. Um, as Niall said, there may be business reasons why you would not want to make that argument if you are a restaurant, but um, there may be be exigencies where um, that's not really an option. 
I also want to note that we saw something similar in the case of the Elk River chemical spill, where um, some companies, um, restaurants, for example, made coverage claims in saying that the MHCM chemical had um, contaminated their, their pipes. It had adhered to the pipes so that those needed to be replaced um, or else the MHCM would um, remain on the property. And that qualified as direct physical loss. Again, it's highly fact specific and depends, I think, a lot on how you evaluate and also frame your claim. On the other hand, we also know that there are other cases where the presence of a virus or bacteria was not held to constitute physical damage or loss. And we also know in this particular case that there may be proof issues. For example, um, it may be difficult to get access to your property in order to um, show that there is um, coronavirus present on surfaces when we are under um, shelter-in-place orders or businesses are required to be closed. Similarly, there may be issues from timing and access to um, the experts who are able to do that work. All we can say with any certainty at this point is that insureds and insurers are almost certain to take different views of the direct physical loss requirement. And the stakes here are simply too high. And that's, um, I think, where it's a good um, time to mention the uh, order that the West Virginia Insurance Commissioner issued just yesterday and that Niall previewed. Um, that's available on the Insurance Commissioner's website at, um, let me just check the, the link for you, but at wvinsurance.gov, that's wvinsurance.gov, and you can see the insurance bulletin there on business interruption insurance. And essentially what the um, Insurance Commissioner says is that business interruption coverage generally applies only to direct physical loss or damage. And the insurance commissioner's um, conclusion is that that generally will not apply in the case of coronavirus or COVID-19. Um, again, I think that's the only thing that we can say with any certainty is that this will be an area of dispute for months or probably years to come. Even if you can show um, direct physical loss or damage under the policy. However, there's another issue that you need to be aware of, and that is the pollution or contaminant exclusion that's common in many policies. So, for example, in a typical business interruption um, policy, damage or loss from pollution may be excluded. And those policies typically define pollutants as meaning any solid, liquid, gaseous, or thermal irritant or contaminant including smoke, vapor, soot, um, fumes, acids, alkalis, chemicals, and waste. And then they go on to define waste. And um, although I think we will see a lot of back and forth and dispute over whether um, a virus like the coronavirus qualifies as a pollutant or contaminant, um, what I, I can say is that a number of courts to have considered that in um, analogous cases have held that it is. And so I think what we will see is insurers um, denying coverage either on the basis of direct physical loss, the absence of direct physical loss, or the pollution exception, or both. The last thing I would note is that when you are reviewing your policy, you should look for an um, explicit um, endorsement that excludes coverage for viruses or bacteria. These became more common 
um, after the um, SARS outbreak that attracted attention in the early 2000s. And um, a typical one will say, for example, we will not pay for loss or damage caused by or resulting from any virus, bacterium, or other microorganism that induces or is capable of inducing physical distress, illness, or disease. Um, again, I think that um, will be a hot um, topic in the insurance area as we look at whether coverage is available for these. Um, now, some businesses may not be able to claim physical loss or damage themselves. Instead, the issue was that they were ordered to shut down by government order. Again, we have seen that quite a bit. Um, and we've gotten a number of questions about what does it mean if I'm an essential to be an essential business? Do I qualify or not? If I'm not, um, am I still allowed to have employees go to work to perform essential functions? How can I get waivers, et cetera? What I'll say briefly on that is that we have um, a number of attorneys in our task force who have looked closely at those and we're happy to speak to you about those issues. We also have um, excellent government relations teams in our footprints who are able to help you with getting um, guidance from the agencies that are enforcing these. But what happens if you are required to shut down by government order? Do you have um, a claim potentially under your business interruption policy? Well, again, it matters here based on the facts, the policy, and the jurisdiction. But um, some policies will have what is um, known as a civil authority um, clause. And a typical one will um, provide coverage when the business is required to shut down or seize operations by a government order. But generally, they have three important limitations. The first is that generally they require a direct physical loss to another business. In other words, it would have to be another business that creates the condition that causes the civil authority to um, order your business to close down. And so what that means is that we're back to the discussion um, that we just had about direct physical loss. The second limitation is that these generally have a geographical limit. So it does not necessarily apply if you're in West Virginia and a business in Pennsylvania um, is required to shut down. Um, the, a common one, for example, um, limits the geographical range to one mile. And then the third is that they only provide coverage for so long, at least typically. So again, a typical one might provide um, business interruption coverage for four weeks. So, um, I think what um, all of this leads to is the conclusion that, generally speaking, um, insurers, uh, insurers are going to face an uphill battle for claiming coverage under business interruption. But that does not mean that it will always be um, unavailable. Again, it depends on your jurisdiction, your policy, and your facts. There are also a few other things that um, bear consideration. The first is that um, insurance agreements are contracts, um, and they are generally subject to contract interpretation rules, although with some twists. And so if there's any ambiguity, generally they will be interpreted against the carrier. The second thing is that courts will not interpret insurance contracts in ways that violate public policy or that frustrate an insured's reasonable expectations. And then the third thing is that agents and insurance companies can, in some cases, be stopped from denying coverage based on representation to the insureds. And so, again, this is why it is so highly fact-specific. 
in why, if you believe that you might be entitled to coverage, um, it would be important to speak with your, your agent or an attorney. So um, I know we've run a little bit over. So um, what I will say in conclusion is um, you should be reviewing your policies. You should be gathering those policies. You should be looking at them for um, any coverage that might be available to you and taking a specific eye, um, specific look at the um, phrasing of the policy as well as any facts um, specific to you as far as interruptions from the novel coronavirus. And certainly we are, are pleased to assist you with that and you can reach out to any one of us um, or any member of our COVID-19 task force. So with that, I will turn it back to you, Niall. Yep, thank you, Joseph. And I'm gonna take a few seconds or a few minutes to, to try to address a couple of the, the questions uh, very generally, as as Joseph said, and thank you both to, to Jim and, and Joseph on a, on a very nice job. Uh, so there was at least, uh, and again, Joseph is right that that our L and E group has, has talked to the uh, several of the issues on the questions that we specifically, but on the actions to mitigate questions, on the idea of what action can I take to limit the the civil tort type liability. You know, I, I touched on that briefly, but the idea is. Um, following as best we can the known guidance. So the idea would be in terms of uh, civil liability, whether it's uh, in terms of a personal injury setting and that fear of being sued on that front is one, following the social distancing as best you can and still getting your job done, whether or not, yes, certainly if you're essential. If you're non-essential, we talked about the risks there uh, are, are very much increased. But if you've been designated essential, certainly, uh, that you can consider such things as a PPE to the extent it's available or right for your setting. You can consider distancing. You can consider uh, increasing hand sanitizer, increasing cleaning. You know, in, in an office setting, think about cleaning the printers. Think about cleaning desktops. Think about cleaning, uh, completely increasing the cleaning stuff. Also, work with entities that have uh, that provide that service of um, cleaning in situations of viral exposure, et cetera, if you feel like you have that that instance. If you're just talking about normal everyday preventative measures, absolutely uh, increase the availability of, of cleaning materials, use them, make sure your folks that are, are, are responsible for that are doing more cleaning, keep your uh, employees apart as much as possible, stagger shifts if that works for you, uh, do what you can to uh, limit the likely exposure at work. And whatever it is you do, document, 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 uh, and document in a manner that shows the the uh, the positivity of what you're doing. Make sure that you're, you're recording the, the important steps you've taken, uh, including who you've consulted with. And the documentation can be, if you're working with an attorney, oftentimes you look at advice of attorney, we're, I'm recording this or whatever, and try to Try to gain some protections on some of that, but you want to record your actions in terms of uh, the steps you're taking on a regular basis. If you have employees that are doing the cleaning, have them do checklists in terms of what they cleaned, when they cleaned, what they cleaned with, those sorts of things. I know we had another question on some very important issues on coverage of some of the latest laws that came out. Um, and and uh I, I, one was very specific to uh, the uh, FEIN, 
and again, that is best directed towards the, the fine folks who are working with employers every day on on uh, on issues like that. Uh, and I mean, literally 24-7, they've been at it and, and getting calls. But I would just point out in terms of the question dealing with uh, 500 employees and uh, the standard that's going to be used for that and whether it's subsidiaries, whether you want to try to uh, mesh them together, et cetera. There are real risks with that, um, and basically the L&E group can work, walk you through it, but you have to think in terms of the risk of joint employer if you try to combine numbers of employees to reach a certain certain threshold, and is it ultimately worth it on the back end? And so the L&E can help you walk through that. I think it's a Fair Labor Standards Act rules that are generally going to – are the best uh, guidance for, for, for the 500-employee threshold, but you'll need to work through that with your legal counsel. Uh, in terms of looking at how you can get uh, to those numbers and whether or not you want to get to those numbers uh, in a way that, that that maybe helps you now and impacts you later or vice versa. So very important there. I also wanted to uh, mention that um, Jim Walls talked about uh, force majeure, and, and he did it as quickly as he can. As Jim said, he could talk about it for days. And again, I point out that, that his experience is very unique in terms of a trial lawyer and general counsel looking at it from a business perspective and a legal one. But Jim had developed the nine points or nine questions um, for his presentation. And, and that, that point of analysis might help you avoid litigation, uh, you know, as counselors at law, which is always what we try to help you do. Um, and so Jim is going to, we're going to get that up on our website. You will be able to see uh, those nine points uh, up on our website and we'll be sure to, to get those published for you um, so that you'll have access through the, the COVID-19 task force and litigation issue. Uh, again, I'd like to thank everyone in attendance. I know we ran slightly over. We added some topics at the last minute that sort of developed uh, both the uh, insurance commissioner issuing and the EPA issuing just late yesterday um, guidance that, that we felt was very important to bring to you. So I apologize an hour. I recognize that your time's important. Uh, so I'm, we're going to end this uh, now. Uh, but I wanted to, to, again, thank you very much for spending your time with us today and, and make sure that you know that we're here for you um, to avoid litigation or uh, to pursue litigation on your behalf. And, and, and God forbid, if you're faced with uh, litigation uh, as a defendant, uh, the battle group was designed just for those purposes. Uh, Jim, Joseph and I all uh, uh, have worked on battle group cases together um, and, and certainly recognize the, the need to work quickly, efficiently, and uh, you know, jump into whatever the scenario is. We work across uh, practice groups and across industry groups. So uh, obviously available to answer questions for you. Um, I wanted also to take the opportunity to talk about some upcoming real quick. Bankruptcy and creditors' rights issues. Uh, we get a lot on that. That's on Monday. And then, of course, the small business loan and tax provisions of the CARES Act. Uh, that'll be Tuesday. Again, everyone needs to be aware of what's available to them in terms of uh, obviously uh, reviewing the latest packages coming out of the federal government and state government. And we'll have presentations on that as well. So Again, thank you for your time and uh, your attention, and I hope we've at least provided you with 
uh, enough information to ask questions. Um, and so we we appreciate your your time today and wish you the best of luck in this very uh, difficult time. And we, we hope ask all of you to stay safe and 